Uh, open your Bibles, I think you already have, to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to highlight verse 6. And I was a little nervous about focusing on just one verse, but then I mentioned it to two people this morning, and they said, good, I find that verse confusing. So uh, let's uh, look at this verse that many have found confusing, and hopefully, uh, with God's help, uh, make it a little clearer just by, it won't be me making it clearer, but, but just by looking at the whole counsel of God, hopefully see this verse in all of its clarity. The Lord Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, commands his people not to be a hypocritical people and says, judge not, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's our verse. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Father, we come before you and we ask you that your word will be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And we beg you that each of us would be humble and broken and trembling at your word and that you would allow your word to come forth in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that our faith would not be in man, but in the word of God, which this really is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we approach the verse we're in this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, I'm overwhelmed uh, by one particular thought. And what I'm overwhelmed by and what I'm thinking about is the thoughtfulness of God. It's, it struck me over and over and over as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. It seems like every time I preach a sermon series, there's one thing that seems to repeat itself to my soul over and over and over. When we were in Isaiah, the Lord kept just driving home to me the continuity of the Bible, how these promises in the Old Testament are all fulfilled in the New, and we have this one scripture with one story. But what struck me over and over and over, I know I've mentioned it to you, but I want to fill it out a little bit. What struck me over and over and over about the Sermon on the Mount is just the thoughtfulness of Jesus towards his people. He's so thoughtful for exactly where his people are at and exactly what his people are dealing with. It's in Psalm 40 that David says, the Lord takes thought for me. What a thought. The Lord takes thought for me. Our sister just shared that thought we've all had. Does anyone care about what I'm going through? And the psalmist tells us, the Lord takes thought for me. And not only does the Lord take thought for us in the Old Testament, but really in the Sermon on the Mount, in the way the sermon is constructed, in the way that Jesus spells things out, what's clear is he knows people. And not just that he knows people, but he knows his people. 
And so let me give you a few examples of this as we kind of get closer in to the text that we're going to look at this morning. But just let me walk you through this in a little bit of a survey on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The Lord Jesus knows that his people have multiple feelings that are painful, that are difficult, that aren't easy feelings. They're poor in spirit. They feel impoverished. They feel empty. They feel like they don't have enough within themselves to keep going in the Christian life. They're poor in spirit. And then on top of that, they mourn. They're grieved over their own sin. Not only is the Holy Spirit grieved, but he imparts that grief to us so that we're mourning over our own sins. And Jesus doesn't just come along to a poor and needy people, to a mournful people, and slap them on the back and say, let's go at it for one more day. He starts with, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. He starts by assuring those who are mourning and are poor that theirs is the kingdom of God, that they're going to be comforted. This is the way someone who thinks about you talks to you. He knows where you're at and then begins to address it by comforting words. And then he tells them they're persecuted. They're going to be persecuted. And what do persecuted people feel like? Well, they feel marginalized. They feel like they're being pushed to the outskirts. They feel like they're, they're, they don't have any place of influence. And so what does he say to them? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's tailor-made. These are not one-off statements. The Sermon on the Mount is not a collection of fortune cookie statements from God. What he's saying is, listen, you feel insecure, you feel persecuted, you feel poor, you feel needy, you're mourning. Listen to me. You're the most influential people in the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And he's, he's comforting them. And then he comes along, and here's what he does. He gives them the highest standards of righteousness that have ever been given. Don't even lust. Forgive your enemies. He calls them to stick out like a sore thumb in the world. He gives them a code of conduct and a a world of heart ethics that are different than the world has ever known. So they're going to stand out. And then he tells them, any way you might reuse religion to get people to like you, praying in public, giving in public, Anything like that, don't. Go do it in secret. And on top of that, give away lots of your money. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when you have a standard, a code of conduct that's different than everyone else, it makes you stick out and feel insecure. When you don't use religion to get people to like you, they don't. When you give away your money, you have less. And what does he do? He comes in with, don't be anxious. Look at the birds. Look at the lilies. It's like he's anticipating the effect every word will have on his people. And he's jumping out ahead of them to think about them, to be thoughtful for them. And I was thinking, this is really something that we should strive to grow in as a congregation. 650 people are so in front of me. We've covenanted towards one another. We've promised to love each other. And one of the ways we want to love each other is by giving thought for one another, being thoughtful about how our words are affecting one another, being aware of the impact the Christian life is having on one 
another. When Jesus notices that his people might feel nervous, he's there with promises that'll help them not be anxious. When Jesus is aware that his people might feel poor and needy, he's there with promises of blessing. And what an amazing thing it is when you're surrounded by Christians who aren't just thinking about themselves and their needs, but are actually proactively jumping ahead to consider you. And they're doing it with wisdom. This is what strikes me over and over about the Sermon on the Mount. It's like he says something that'll make you nervous, he comes to deal with your anxiety. He says something that'll make you persecuted, he comes in to deal with, with your feelings of insignificance. There's an awareness, there's a wisdom to the way he approaches his people. I wonder, do you pray for that kind of wisdom in your Christian life? Do you pray for the kind of wisdom that would be aware of how life is affecting someone else, how the truth of God might be impacting someone else, and then has wisdom to minister into their needs right there in their difficulties? If you're sitting here and going, well, I don't pray that as much as I should, let me give you two prayers. I've loved these prayers for years in my Christian life, and it's so striking to me that the wisdom that Jesus displays on the Sermon on the Mount, knowing how his word is going to affect you, getting out ahead of it with promises and comforts, that kind of wisdom Paul prays for in not only the book of Philippians, but the book of Colossians. Listen to these prayers. Make them your own in the coming weeks and months. Paul prays in Philippians 1.9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Of course. I want you to love people more. But listen to what he says. He goes on. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. There's a lot of people who love, but they, they're dumb. Right? There's a lot of people who want to care for people, but they haven't got a lot of savvy in doing it, they show up at the home of a family who's experienced a miscarriage and they're immediately rushing to the bubbly giggly verses of the Bible and not able to mourn with those who mourn. They haven't thought about this person they're dealing with. Listen to this prayer from Colossians chapter one. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So you can apparently be filled with the knowledge of his will in folly and be quite foolish in how you handle the knowledge of his will. And so Paul prays, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of him in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I mentioned, and Pastor Jeff mentioned in the prayer, but I mentioned the state of the church address that one of the areas I would love to see us grow in in the coming year is the area of discipleship. And one of the main things we're doing in discipleship, whether it's going out for coffee with another believer or leading a small group Bible study or just coming to church early and staying late to have intentional conversations, is we're just hearing Christians who are already intent on obeying and being thoughtful to help them exercise that obedience wisely. Noticing they feel poor in spirit, coming out with a blessing 
noticing they're feeling anxious, helping them address that anxiety with the promises of God. As we grow in attentiveness and wisdom and speaking the truth to one another in love with that kind of skill, we are discipling one another. We're making one another like Jesus so that our love doesn't abound in folly, our love abounds in wisdom. What a, and it just happens one conversation at a time. There's not Eugenie fireworks after you say a balancing statement or a wise statement, but those things make such a difference in a church's life over the years. They add rings to the oak tree that God is growing in our midst. They make the tree strong, the tree of the church. So the first thing I wanted you to notice was simply the thoughtfulness of Jesus. Now, I say all that by way of background, but our verse this morning is a specific example of the thoughtfulness of Jesus. It's a specific example of the thoughtfulness of Jesus. He's just told us not to judge. He's told us not to be judgmental. He's told us not to be uh, hypocritical in our judgment. He doesn't want his people with their high standards of righteousness biting and devouring one another. That's not the goal. The goal is not to say, I know all the things that are righteous and then attack the church of God. That's not the goal. And so he tells us not to judge. But we're sinners. And so what we tend to do when we get one command is we swerve out of one ditch and, and immediately swerve into the next one, right? Can you imagine if all we had in the Bible was judge not? Oh, I know there's in sexual immorality. I know he's teaching heresy, but I just don't want to judge. And so here, right on the heels of telling us not to judge, well, Jesus basically tells us to judge. We're to judge certain people to be dogs and pigs. And when we see that certain people are dogs and pigs, we're to not teach them about holy things. And we are to not cast the pearls of the gospel in front of them. And this isn't just sort of a random piece of wisdom. It's actually the case that if you ignore this call, you will get devoured and God's word will get trampled on if we don't listen to God's word. So let's walk through this command because it's just balancing for us. We're not to be judgmental, hypocritical people, but that doesn't mean, in the words of John Stott, that we're to be simpletons. We're not to be judgmental, hypocritical people, but we are to be people of discernment. We are to be people who can call a spade a spade whose senses are, are being sharpened to know what's right and what's wrong, and to realize that not all people we encounter are the same. Yes, they're all made in the image of God. Yes, they're all lost in sin, but not everybody's in the same place in their sin. Some, the Lord Jesus describes, not all, are described as dogs and pigs. So what are we talking about here? Let's walk through this slowly and make sure we really understand what the verse is saying. First of all, we're told not to do two things. We're not to give what is holy, and we're not to throw pearls. So what is holy? Well, so far in the book of Matthew, three things have been holy. Jesus is holy, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jerusalem is called holy, God's holy city. And we've been praying that God's name would be holy. Hallowed be thy name. So the things that are holy are the things that have to do with God. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, his gospel that he came to bring, his death on the cross, his resurrection, all of those would be the things that we count as holy, as precious to God. And then there are things that are pearls. And this one's actually quite simple. Uh, we know that a pearl is precious, but Jesus actually tells us that a pearl is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 13 says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Knowing Jesus, his cross, his death, his resurrection, his salvation, it's like a pearl that you give up everything to go get. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about the central truths of our faith. What's holy and what's precious. What's holy and what's pearls? There's some people we're not to give that to. And those people are called dogs and pigs. Now, I know many of you have a tender little pooch at home that you bought a special Christmas sweater for and uh, is just the love of your life. Um, and we like our dog quite a bit too. But the facts are that to the Jew, a dog was not a pet. A dog was a mangy pack animal that lived on the edge of town and would be something closer to the coyotes that you might run into if you're in a park at the wrong time of day. They were dangerous, they bit, and they were harmful. You're thinking more hyena than you are Benji. And then pigs, of course, were almost synonymous in Jewish language with everything that was dirty. The kosher laws of the Old Testament, of course, required that Jews did not eat pigs, and so pigs never would have been domesticated. There were no babes, there were no Wilbers in the Old Testament whatsoever. A pig would have been much closer to a warthog, again, outside on the edge of town in the dump, something dangerous, something with no cleanliness about it, something that you stayed away from. And so Jesus uses this illustration, this, this picture, to describe certain kinds of people. But that still doesn't answer all of our questions, does it? Which kinds of people? Well, in one sense, the word dog could just mean unbeliever in general. You remember Jesus had an interaction with a woman where he said he did not give the children's things to the dogs. And of course, he wasn't referring, sometimes we use dog, and I hope you don't use dog this way, but sometimes in our culture we use dog as an unattractive woman. He's not using it like that at all. He's speaking as a Gentile. She's someone outside the people of God. And they were referred to sometimes as dogs. But we want to be careful here because what's being said is not don't share the gospel with non-Christians. Good. Everyone agrees with that? Yeah, I'm glad. Okay. What Jesus is teaching here, even though dog can be synonymous with unbeliever and pig certainly could, could be synonymous with what is unclean, the whole rest of the Bible, and especially the gospel of Matthew, makes it very clear that we are to share the gospel with unbelievers. Go ye therefore into all nations and make disciples. So we are to share the gospel with dogs and pigs in that sense. 
But I think Jesus means something stronger here. He's talking about the most defiled, the most dirty, the most dangerous of the ungodly. He's recognizing that among the ungodly, not all things are equal. And that among the ungodly, there are certain people who are particularly dangerous, particularly deadly, and particularly, um, they particularly reject with vehemence the truths of God's word. And those people are here being called dogs and pigs. Now, a couple little pieces of theological discernment for us. As Christians, and especially as Christians who understand the truths of Scripture, we understand that all people are what we often call totally depraved. That is, all people are sinful to the core. Total depravity does not mean, though, that every single person is as bad as they could be. It just means that every single person is bad to the core, or they're bad in every single part. The best way I've heard this illustrated is if you wanted to compare total depravity to the color blue, and you say all humanity is blue, but not all people are dark blue. Some people are light blue. There is gradation. There are reasonable unbelievers. There are unbelievers who will kill you at the mention of the name of Jesus. And so and we see this, for example, in the pharaohs in the time of Israel, right? In the time of Israel in Egypt. The first, heir, the first pharaoh that Israel was under actually favored them, gave Joseph favor. The next pharaoh was hard and persecuted the people of God. But then here's the thing, that he got harder as time went on. Both men are totally depraved. But there are gradations to that depravity. And Jesus is telling us there's certain people that you're going to encounter that you should flag as dogs and pigs, as particularly violent, dangerous, and defiled to the point where you should not share holy things with them. You should not share the precious pearls that you love, the blood of Christ. There's power in the blood. I love singing that this morning. There's power in the blood that's precious to us. And it shouldn't be placed in front of everyone. Okay, well, I've said that. And if you're like me, that still gives you almost no idea exactly where to apply this verse. So where would we get really concrete ideas about how to apply this verse? And I want to suggest to you a biblical principle that can help you in a lot of different areas. And here's what it is. That when we're not sure how a particular truth should be applied, we should do our best to see how faithful Christians in the Bible, especially, and in church history in general, applied that truth. And where do I get that principle? I get that principle from Hebrews 13, 7, which says this, remember your leaders, remember your leaders. Can you believe that? There's a command in the Bible to remember the leaders that have gone before. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their, sorry, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do you see what I'm saying? Here we are, 
we know clearly there's some people called dogs, there's some people called pigs. We're not to put the gospel in front of those people. We're not to let the gospel be trampled on and spit on. We're not to get attacked in that whole process. Who are these dogs and pigs? Well, let's see how the Old sorry, how the New Testament believers applied this. We're to remember our leaders. We're to notice how they applied this verse. Are you following me? Yes, one person is following me. That's very comforting. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. You and me for the rest of this. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, is Nathan? Okay. Both of you, okay. I'm going to repeat myself. There are certain people who are really at a particular place in their depravity that they are defiled and dirty and dangerous to the people of God and we're not to put the gospel in front of them repeatedly. And to understand how to apply that and who those people are, we can watch the example of the New Testament Christians. We can see what the New Testament Christians did. How did they flesh this out? They were shaped by the Sermon on the Mount. How did they do it? How did they obey this verse? So let me spell that out to you. First of all, they did not apply it in such a way that they didn't share the gospel with actual murderers. In other words, they knew this verse and they were still willing to share the gospel with actual murderers. I get that from Acts 2, 22, first ever Christian sermon that's ever preached. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and here's what they preach, here's what Peter preaches. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Think about that. He's not speaking theoretically. It's not like some sentimental song like, I killed Jesus too. This is, he's actually talking to the people who killed Jesus. And he's telling them, he's accusing them of the murder of Jesus, but he's preaching the gospel to them, and 3,000 of them are saved. So, the New Testament church did not apply this verse. Do not cast what's holy and what's precious before dogs and pigs. They did not apply it in such a way that if someone was murderous and even against Christ, they immediately didn't preach the gospel to them. You follow me? Yes, thank you. Here's another thing. They also preached the gospel to men and women who were debased and debauched. They preached the gospel freely to men and women who were debased and debauched. Think about Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Aren't you glad that he preaches the gospel to the debased and debauched? Aren't you glad that even though you may have been a homosexual, you may have been a liar, you may have been greedy, you may have been an adulterer, you may have been immoral, he preached the gospel to you, and if you've trusted Christ, he saved you. That's amazing. So they didn't take this verse... And look at all the disgusting people out there with their wicked sins. We're holding back the gospel from them. No, they were the wicked people with the disgusting sins. And they were preaching it to other people just like them. 
This verse does not mean, we're still in what it doesn't mean, that the minute someone disagrees with you, you walk away going, pig. <laughs> Second Timothy 2.24, this is a word to all Christians, but it's especially addressed to leaders in the church, teachers in the church, and so we should hear it, brother pastors. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Someone disagrees with you on an ongoing way. They even are, could be called your opponent. And the first move is not that dog-headed pig. That's not it. It's correcting with gentleness, kindness, a continual care for their soul, trusting that many people who have been lost in error will get saved out of error, will be granted repentance. Okay, so what does it mean? How did the New Testament church apply this? They, they were obviously in some situations where they said, you know what, the words of Jesus, they apply right here. Th those people need to be walked away from. I'll give you a couple examples. First of all, they walked away from those who persistently would not listen. They walked away from those who would persistently not listen. And the reason I add the, read, the word persistently is because you don't know if a person won't listen. Right? Like none of us have the radar. We're walking up to unbelievers and we, I saw it above their head. I will not listen. We talk like that. I know they won't listen. But when we talk like that, we are missing the power of the Spirit of God. So Jesus, he commanded his first generation of disciples... If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Beloved, if there are people who consistently will not listen to what you're bringing them from the gospel, you are called to not continually bring the gospel to them. Now, I'm going to talk lots in a minute about how much we should be bringing the gospel, but we need to start there because honestly, sometimes we waste our time sharing the gospel over and over and over with people who won't listen rather than taking our time, which is precious and short, and bringing the gospel to those who will listen. The second thing we see in the example of the New Testament church is that when people became violent against the preachers of the gospel, they felt at liberty to shake their, the dust off their feet and move on. The dogs were devouring them, if you will. Acts 13, verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region, but the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. So here's Paul and Barnabas trying to preach the gospel, trying to do good, trying to love their neighbor. And the Jews 
stir up men and women against them. And it says, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Another thing we see in the New Testament, an example, is that when a person has a pattern of being dangerous to the people of God, it's fair to tell other Christians about them. When a person has a pattern of being dangerous to the people of God, it's fair to tell other Christians about them. 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his, de his deeds. And then he says to Timothy, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Do you hear the idea there? Alexander the coppersmith did me dirty. Maybe been Alexander the coppersmith that got Paul in jail, I don't know. But he's like, listen, Timothy, when you come this way, you watch out for him. Don't let him get you. That's fair game. And so what we're talking about when we talk about pigs and dogs is we're not just talking about unbelievers in general. We should be sharing the gospel liberally and wildly and, and lavishly with those who don't know, know, know Christ, expecting that, that homosexuals and adulterers and immoral and idolaters and greedy people will get saved. But there comes a time when a person refuses to listen and when a person is so hostile, scoffing, and even violent against our message that the Bible actually commands us in wisdom not to keep spending our time giving such a person holy things and not to spend our time placing those pearls before swine. Well, let me apply this a little bit and then I'll sit down. We should all share the gospel so much that we actually need this wisdom. The sad part is that many of us, influenced by the hostility and the political culture, climate of our culture, have already labeled all kinds of people dogs and pigs that never should have been labeled this way. And we can use the debauchery of our culture as an excuse for not sharing the gospel. But the facts are, we should be so active in sharing the gospel, so busy in sharing the gospel, so clear in sharing the gospel, that instead of this being a theoretical piece of wisdom, oh yeah, when I meet a dog someday, I'm not to give them the gospel. When I meet a pig someday, I'm not to put holy things in front of them. No, no, we should be so busy sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors that we might actually meet these people and find people who don't listen and are hostile and we pull back from. But honestly, I would hate it if this verse quelled your evangelistic zeal at all. Instead, we should take this as realize this is zeal, this is wisdom for people who are in the evangelistic battle. This is wisdom for people who are sharing the gospel. And so let's pray. Let's pray. What, what if this is, I'm not always... The, the commands of Scripture are binding no matter what, but there are some burdens I'm getting in my heart for 2024. They'll still be important in 2025 because the Bible's not going to change. But they are, they're, they're on my heart, and I'll tell you about them. I would love to see us and me 
grow to be a more evangelistic people. Not to descend into just navel-gazing about us, but to being consumed with a world that doesn't know Christ and sharing the gospel with the people of that world. And the, the reality is, in order to be that kind of people, we need God's Holy Spirit to grip us more and more with his love. We need God's Holy Spirit to grip us more and more with his love. So we want to share the gospel more and more and more. And my prayer is that we are so decidedly and continually and passionately and effectively evangelistic that this is actually one of the pieces of wisdom we need from time to time. Not too quick. John Stott said in his whole ministry, he only applied this verse twice. We don't want to be running around declaring people unfit for the gospel. There's a time we need to be discerning, but there's a lot of people where it takes some difficult conversations and some difficult love before they get saved. I want to say a word to some of you. It really could apply anywhere, but I want to make sure it applies to families. I know that many... It's, it's only natural when you want to see your family saved. It's right and natural. Paul wanted to see his own kinsmen, according to the flesh, saved. In the Gospel of John, the first chapter, the, the first people that get the Gospel are the family members of the people who get the Gospel. It's right to want to see mom and dad and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles saved. But I actually think family is a place where we often need this advice, too. Because sometimes believers are so persistent with their family members that they do more to get God's word trampled underfoot and to get themselves bitten than they actually need to do. You should share the gospel with all your family members. And once you have, if they don't want to listen or they want you to back off or they want you to shut up, you should continue to live the gospel before all your family members. And what's amazing, one of the mottos I live by is life is very, very short, but it's also very, very long. And one of the, amazing, one of the things that's amazing is that family member that doesn't want to hear anything from you in a trial five years later or in a difficulty 10 years later you often wind up in a different situation and the dog is toned down and the pig has cut off its tusks, things have settled down, and you're in a much better place to bring the gospel. But if you have to go through some years of silence where you're not just poking the bear, don't feel guilty. It's not always wise to bring the gospel forward in every conversation. Two, two last things. I want to warn many of you here. There are people in this room who are not Christians. They're having gospel conversations. They're talking to other people about the gospel. But they're hardening their hearts. They're growing more antagonistic, more dug in, more hardened against the gospel. And just like Pharaoh of old, you can harden your heart to the point where you will not hear the voice of God. 
you can get to the point where you're the dog or the pig that other people shouldn't be speaking to. And if you've got any rationality, any inclination, any openness to the gospel, receive it today. Repent today. Believe today. Don't wait for a day where your heart is softer. If you tarry, tell your better. You will never come at all. Come today. Come today. Don't watch what will happen in your life if you harden yourself to the point of being a vile animal set against the cause of Christ. Come now and become the full man or full woman you were meant to be in Jesus, redeemed, forgiven, and loved. And believers, can you believe you got saved? I used to go downtown in Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada, to antagonize the kids from the local Bible college who were going downtown to share the gospel. I would go downtown to meet them and make their lives miserable. They would grab me and take me to the subway where I could meet their professor, because if, apparently if I met the professor, he was gonna be smarter than me and bring me to Christ, but I wasn't set on learning anything. I was set on antagonizing them. And what's a, a miracle is that I got a second chance. What's a miracle is that even with that level of hostility, God didn't let my heart go cold as cold. I was already dead, but he didn't place me in this dog and pig place where no one would even talk to me. Instead, over time, he brought me to the end of myself and he brought me a faith in Christ. And whatever your testimony is, he did the same with you. Instead of making you buck against the gospel, growl at the gospel, snarl at the gospel, mock the gospel, trample the gospel. He's made you receive the gospel. And now we should be running to the opposite of dog, dog, and, dog and pigs. We should be aiming for teachable lambs. People who aren't hostile to God's word but eager to receive it meekly from friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters in Christ who want to sharpen us. That's the glory of what God's done in his church. That's the glory of what God's done in his bride. Praise God for his wisdom. Praise God for his salvation. Father, we thank you so much for your wise word. We ask you, Lord God, that you would teach us your word we ask you, Lord God, that you would make us a people who are not hypocritical and judgmental, but also make us a people who are not fools, who get your word mocked and slaughtered, who antagonize the most hostile unbelievers, and even endanger your precious saints. Lord, we pray that you'd make us a passionately evangelistic and discipling people, sharing the gospel liberally with those who hate you, and looking to, to you to make them love you. And we pray that you would save us to the uttermost, even as you brought, you and brought us into your fold. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.